From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. So, Joanna, you know, you were back on Friday, but we said we would we would wait till today for you to tell us all of the amazing stories and things that you've been drinking. <laughs> I hope that it's like a, maybe the whole – guys, the whole podcast is just going to be Joanna talking about what she's been drinking. Oh, yeah. I'll just knock off early. That's Sweet. Bye. <laughs> no. But so, Joanna, what have you been drinking? Sorry. Wait. You guys have kids, right? Like – well, how much do you think I've been drinking over the past three months? Like a lot. <laughs> yeah, we have kids. I assume plenty. <sighs> what did you have? Sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> Let me tell you what the first thing I drank was what after was I gave it? birth. What was it? A Corona. I love it. Okay. In the hospital? No. Okay. <laughs> the first cocktail I had was a Negroni. Okay. My father-in-law made it for me. Nice. How was it? Amazing. Yes. It was the best thing ever. Nice. You know? I haven't been out a ton, unfortunately, no, yeah. much to my own dismay. I really do want to get out, but it's a little challenging. It is. Um, I did have a painkiller out recently, though. Where? Pretty, just a local bar. <laughs> just, you're like, you're like, I don't even. I literally had Max strapped to me. So. But you had a painkiller. <laughs> yeah, I had a painkiller. That's, that's quite the drink. Yeah, it was good. Nice. Um, and honestly, I've just been working my way through the Borg. That the team made for me. Wait, we, didn't, we don't know about this. What are you talking about? <laughs> what Borg? So the team gifted me. The editorial team. The editorial team gifted me a blackout rage gallon, a.k.a. <laughs> a Borg of Manhattans. <laughs> you, you, that's amazing. <laughs> so just a, a gallon of Manhattans. A gallon of Manhattans. Holy shit. It, it's awesome. <laughs> and so Evan and I have been chipping away at the Borg. Evan must love it. He does. He's like, it's Borg o'clock. <laughs> That's what he says. I'm like, That's my Borg, it's by the a, way. It's my Borg. <laughs> it's a gallon? A gallon. That's a lot I of I think we're about halfway through. <laughs> I mean, that is a lot of Manhattan. It's perfect though, because it's diluted already. Did Tim Because tell Tim you, spearheaded that. Did Tim tell you what's in it? Like what what he used? Um, I believe Nicolette actually made it, and it took like two to three bottles of rye or something. But Nicolette made it, not Tim. Mm-hmm. Wow! Under Tim's instruction, strong I work, Nicolette. <laughs> yeah, it's been excellent though. It was such a lovely, thoughtful. And gift. so there's obviously some sweet vermouth in there, mm-hmm. and then Tim diluted it. And was like, let's go. Yeah, he's like, you can just pour this and just <laughs> drink it right out of the right out of the gallon. Is it living <laughs> in your refrigerator? Yes, of course. I love it. Taking up space. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Borg o'clock. Yeah. And then otherwise, just like getting beer, like local beers, like a lot of Talea beer. Cool. Um, Is there a Talea near you? No, no. But we have like our bodega has a lot of like local New York beer. Um, A lot of uh, Grimm. Yep. Some Finback. Great. Yeah. You're close to the Finback Brewery. Mm -hmm. That's a great brewery. Yeah. So I haven't had a lot. I haven't like been drinking a lot. Yeah. I know you haven't either. I know no, you I have haven't. your like late night bourbon or whatever. I actually haven't done that in like over two weeks. Mm-hmm. Like I just on most nights I don't drink at all. Yeah. It's like too much. If you're going to wake up in the middle of the night, I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> if I do drink, I will have a drink and that's kind of it. Yeah. So, but yeah. it's been nice. I'm happy to be back. Nice. And um, I'm excited to go check out new spots. Sweet. Yeah. Zach, what about you, man? Well, it's funny. Like I, I, t- I have obviously many, many uh, memories of the the dilemma faced by the I want to drink, but also I know I'm going to be waking up at one in the morning. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, or whatever. 
fortunately, we have largely graduated out of that in this household. So uh, drinking at, at the end of the night is not such a punishing uh, decision. But, you know, been kind of, you know, we've had just some very kind of early summery weather here. And, and when we get into that kind of weather, I just I I find myself really kind of gravitating towards uh, maybe unsurprisingly, like some lighter styled beers, a lot of like very kind of bright cocktails been playing around a little bit with um the there's a like really cool little uh hole in the wall vegetable and fruit stand near my house and they always bring in like a lot of unusual citrus um stuff that's like not always super easy to find even in like the bigger grocery stores so like i've been playing around with pomelo uh mm. which is not really like a great cocktail ingredient because like no, it's there's not. just so much pith um yeah. you don't get a lot of great juice out of it a little bit of yuzu which is kind of fun to play with too um you know just kind of messing around with that and like essentially like what i've kind of just like a repurposed French 75 um, because it's like such a nice bright drink um, with, you know, a little bit of gin and some sparkling wine and then just kind of mixing up the citrus in there to give it a different kind of uh, vibe. But uh, I think the other thing, it's funny, it's not, it's not a Borg, but the the (laughs) thing that we have decided in this household is that what we do want in, in the fridge at all times are a couple of uh, kind of batched cocktails. So been, toying around we got we got a few different bottles we've got a, a negroni bottle at all times because it's definitely something that both caitlin and i go for on the regular uh we've got a manhattan bottle again not a gallon just uh <laughs> just a half just a half liter uh just in case and uh and then the the sort of other thing that i've been sort of trying to figure out is like what is the third or sorry i've forgotten one we have a, a i have a gin martini bottle so then it's like what is the fourth bottle and haven't actually filled it yet i've been debating kind of Hmm. what's the other drink i want to have on hand that like can be can live in the fridge for a few weeks at a minimum because you're not going to move through all of these super quickly and i don't know listeners if you've got suggestions podcast divinepair.com of course adam joanna if you have thoughts be happy to hear them but it's just uh it's a little bit like taunting me with its emptiness at the moment so i'm gonna figure out how to fill that what have you been drinking adam or not been drinking, I guess. <laughs> well, on uh, Saturday night, we I made Naomi and I margaritas, nice, which was fun. Um, that was great. We made some tacos. Great night all around. <laughs> and then otherwise, I had like a nice rosé with Naomi on Friday night. We've been doing like the thing like two or three nights a week. We'll like either open a bottle of wine and split it, or I'll make like cocktails. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was the most fun we had this last week. Um, I'm looking forward to this weekend because we have um, some like some people coming over. We have Josh coming over with Keith actually on and Gina on Saturday. So nice. hopefully we'll open some fun wine during the day and oh. day drink a little bit, which I think is actually makes it easier. I'm <laughs> it's true, Adam. I want to follow up on something that we talked about a while back, but yeah, that we never got details on. Which is, I know you had the opportunity. I think over the. Uh, Cinco de Mayo slash uh, Derby weekend to go uh-huh. to Lancaster and to go to Horse Inn. And I wanted to uh-huh. hear if there was anything that stood out to you there. Oh, at the Horse Inn? Did you have your burger? Yeah. First of all, yes, I had my burger and it was delicious. <laughs> also, um, they had this really amazing martini called the Forager's Martini. Mm-hmm. And so they've been like, the cocktail team has been re- reusing um, ingredients from the kitchen, like waste from the kitchen. Ooh. So they use like they've been processing a lot of ramps for like a ramp dish and they were using like the ramp juice Hmm. uh, and they made a tincture with it. And then they were sort of using that as a brine for this sort of like their take on a martini, but a dirty ramp martini, which was really delicious. And then I had this like sort of 
tiki-esque drink that they had made by infusing a few of the rums with the caps of straw of the strawberries because they had been um they they have a, a strawberry hand pie that was really amazing and so that was a very tasty drink um yeah i mean they have they have just a lot of awesome cocktails so the only thing that that I had that I was not prepared for, and this is my own stupidity. Is you guys ever like look at a a cocktail and you like you see an ingredient and you're like, I, I should know what this is, but I'm not gonna. I'm 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 stupid and I'm not gonna like. I'm not gonna up. ask, and I'm also like not gonna assume what it is. So it was this. It was a. It was their <laughs> version of a Manhattan, but it had one of like the last ingredients, like fire water. Oh, I don't love fire water. So I didn't even think about it, and I don't do spicy. And it was extremely spicy. And I had this it, like instance where I had to call the uh, server over, and I was like, hey, like I, this is my own fault. <laughs> I am more than happy to just keep this drink on the table, but I need to order something else because I cannot drink this. It is so spicy. It's burning my mouth off. And she was like, yeah, we basically hear that from people. It's like either they love it, or like it's super super spicy. It's like, yeah, but I should have known. Like you literally call you say that there's fire water in it. I just looked at the ingredient and was like, oh, fire water. Oh, I wonder what that is. <laughs> just like didn't even connect the dots. Was it cinnamon e as well, or no, was it just like no? It's a su- they make a super with kitchen stuff mm-hmm. like leftover peppers and stuff. They make a really really concentrated hot water. Oh wow! That they like Oof. use to mix it and dilute the Manhattan, and it was. F- fucking spicy it was very tasty but then the heat was just like so high at the end that i was just like i can't do this and then we said it like it made it it made the drink taste way boozier than you mm. would think it normally was because it's almost like bringing out the it is making that burn, burn you get yeah. even more intense which i can see people loving but it was not not for you not for me <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was like, I, I can't do this. But anyways, otherwise it was amazing. The burger was delicious. I had this amazing pea shoot salad that they had, you know, from their, because they have a farm now. So cool. yeah, really amazing spot, the horse in. <laughs> Just great. And they had our award hanging right next to their James nice. Beard Award, which was, which was also awesome. Yeah, they're just good people. Mm-hmm. They're just really good people. And they also let me know that they, they were, they came over, but the bar director came over. He's like, by the way, I just want to let you know, we all talk about this here. You guys were the first people to talk about double chicken, please. Oh. And I was like, thank you for acknowledging me. <laughs> yeah, we had him on the podcast before, like, I think they even opened. Yeah, totally. He was like, and now yeah. they're, you know, number GM. one. Yeah, number one bar in um, North America, like number two bar in the world. I was like, yeah, we knew. <laughs> we knew. <laughs> so this uh, this podcast is a little bit about things like the Horse Inn. We talked about this before. But I thought it was really interesting to to examine this even further because of data that was released this uh, past week in the New York Times through their vertical, the Upshot, which is a data focused vertical that that like really analyzes economic, social data, et cetera. And what this data they looked at was examining was the shrinking of cities in terms of its abandonment by people who are college educated. So. Obviously, we talked about this in COVID. People like left and you know moved to other parts of the country, places where they felt safer, where they had more space, etc. But what this data shows is that actually people were making this migration much earlier than just COVID, and it has continued post-COVID, mm-hmm. right? And 
it's really affecting 10 major cities in the United States, the one that we're in in New York being one <laughs> and the one where Zach is in his basement in the other. <laughs> um, so, you know, Seattle and New York are two of the of the biggest ones being affected, but L.A., San Francisco, et cetera. And the I think what it, it taught, I think what the data showed to me has helped explain a lot of conversations we've been having. And yeah. one of the things that the data talked about was like it's people aren't leaving just because of the sheer expense of everything it's almost that everything is in reaction to everything else so what mm-hmm. i what i what i think is really interesting is like you know one of the examples new york has gotten very expensive what that has meant is that people who are a lot of people who are college educated have left new york for other places where they can afford to live what that has then meant is that new york has gotten even more expensive because now it's catering to people who can afford to live here who have a lot of money so like this idea that we can play about with like the really high-end wine list being super expensive in New York is actually a product of the fact that the majority of people who are now in New York are very wealthy, right? That's what all this data is showing, and that's why those restaurants are still full, right? It's still hard to get into those places. That's why those, that's why those lists are what they are because if they were having a hard time selling those wines, they would price their lists cheaper. But actually, they can price their lists that way very easily because – the people who are here seem to feel like they're comfortable enough to stay here. Right. And yeah. the people who have left are going other places and making the places that we we pine for in New York and Seattle, right? The places that are affordable, that have cocktails that are, you know, under $12, that have really interesting wines. And so, you know, one of my takeaways before I hear what you guys thought is like I actually think one of my hot takes is going to be I think the place where 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 you will go to discover or where affordable cool regions will emerge in the next 10 years for wine is not going to be in these markets it's going to be in these secondary places people have moved because that's mm-hmm. where people are looking for those kinds of wines in new york in seattle etc where there's extreme wealth and everyone else who was like middle class is kind of moving out they're more than happy to to stick to burgundy and champagne and napa cab because they know it but in maybe one of the cities they talk about is Phoenix and there's Atlanta. Wines from Mencia, from, you know, really cool parts of California, maybe Santa Barbara, et cetera. Like those are going to be places that are going to be very thirsty for those kinds of wines because that's the, the group of people that's in those cities. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of takeaways here, but I think it's, a, it's really interesting to see how this is all happening. Yeah. I mean, I think we've talked about Phoenix specifically yeah. as this like – city that's blowing up kind of surprisingly in the past couple of years. And yeah, I I mean, I'm sure for the wine space, but also just for the drink space cocktails as well. Like we're going to see a lot of talent go to these mid-size, mid-size metros, I guess Mm -hmm. is what they're, what the time is calling it. Um, And I think it will pull some of the creativity out of the New Yorks and the Seattles and the San Francisco's as well. I agree. I think just personally, it's so interesting because I don't know what it would take to get me to leave New York. It's soups. It's like <laughs> extremely expensive here, right? And you just kind of get used to it. But I think, you know, something we've been talking about a lot over the past couple of months is like you just go out less often, um, but you still are willing to pay <laughs> for these I, things. <laughs> I think that here's the thing I think is so interesting about New York. And like maybe, Zach, I think you might have a similar thought process with Seattle is – I think, like, for me now, my business is here. It'd be very hard to leave. Right. For people like you, 
Well, it's, a lot of this is college grads, right? Right. New college grads but, leaving. But even so, you're seeing people like oh, there's, you know, talking about people in their like 30s who start, mm-hmm. start to leave. Like you're from here. Like your right. family is here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I think you leaving here would be very hard. You know, like why why would you leave? And you have a support system, right. et cetera. I think it's the same for Josh, mm-hmm. right? Like his family's here. Sort of for Naomi. I mean, for us, it's like if we're going to move to another city, it'd be Philly. Mm-hmm. And Philly is definitely cheaper, but it's not much cheaper than New York. So I think that there, there's that bucket. And then there's people that were here because, like, they New York was this place they thought of, right? Mm-hmm. Same for L.A., Seattle, et cetera. Like, Seattle's this massive tech center, right? People want to be there. And then they start making the salaries that they even could make in these cities that are good salaries in marketing, tech, et cetera. And they start looking at what they can afford to buy and where they can afford to live. And like, wait. Yeah, why wouldn't I go to Phoenix or Charlotte's another city they talk about? Um, talk a lot about Denver, like these places where like people are able to own homes and you know and dine out more regularly. And I think the other thing that's really interesting about the article that they talk about, but while looking at the data, is that when we talk about expense and quality of life, that definition is very different for a college educated person than we think about when we think about the the flight that we've seen and and examined, you know, on the reg of of a lower income you know low less educated person where that that really is all about like can i afford to to live somewhere mm-hmm. for a lot of college educated like it might be that yes i can afford to live in new york but i want to be able to go out to eat three nights a week and i can only afford to go out two right or i can afford to eat in new york three nights a week and live here but i want to also be able to go out to a cocktail bar every night of the week and i can't and that I thought was really interesting that that's what they talk about much more as influencing a lot of these decisions. It's not just about like, well, I could afford a shoebox, but I want a house because for some people that doesn't actually matter. It's more about like the entire experience. Mm-hmm. There's so much to dig into here. And I think you both have brought up really good points. I think a couple of things I wanted to add just from my perspective, one of them is that a thing that we might be seeing, and in particular, I think New York, LA, and San Francisco are kind of three of the big illustrators of this, as far as I'm concerned, is that it's not so much that you're seeing a mass exodus, it's that you're not seeing a kind of the the same level of, you know, kind of incoming college educated people of, of whatever age and economic sort of standing exactly. And I think it's because some of the industries that were so centralized in those cities are a little less centralized now. Mm-hmm. So you think about journalism, right? And obviously, Vine Pair is headquartered in New York, and many publications are. But some publications have moved out of places like New York because of the cost. Not so much, I mean, maybe because of cost of living for employees, but also just because of all the other attendant costs. And especially in a, you know, in the modern landscape, it's unclear whether you absolutely have to be in an at one of the biggest couple of cities in the country to be a successful media company. I mean, that's a still an unproven sort of hypothesis or, or the, that you don't have to be, I suppose, is the unproven hypothesis. And, you know, you think about a lot of the kinds of people that used to come to these, you know, these biggest cities, these kind of cultural hubs, not just sort of, you know, population centers. And, you know, again, we are we seeing a person who's 24 and sees themselves as being, you know, kind of in the entertainment media space as believing that they absolutely have to live in Los Angeles or New York. I mean, I don't know, maybe there's still a lot of that. But look at how people are, you know, suddenly becoming incredibly famous on, you know, TikTok and stuff like that. You don't necessarily have to be anywhere in particular to do that. That's true. 
so there is a there is a kind of like a, perhaps a lack of incoming sort of people to replace the eventual the inevitable outflow. I mean, New York is an enormous city. You're always going to have people moving out for whatever reasons. They can be it can be cost or not. I think the other piece of it is is that what you are seeing though, and I think this is where the conversation that relates to drinks and the kind of industry specifically is really fascinating to me is that it used to be the case that in a way the the major, major cities were seen as the place you had to kind of go to really learn about, you know, bartending, you know, wine service to be sort of a, you know, a truly credentialed, I guess, for lack of a way, better way to put it, whether officially or just via experience. And I'm wondering if people are now looking at a lot of these other larger metros that are not as expensive and saying like, you know what, I can go move to to Houston, or I can move to Charlotte, or I can move to Austin, and I can work in a great bar, or I can work in a restaurant with a cool wine program, and I can get all of the, you know, sort of experience and skill and all those things that I used to thought think I had, I might have had to move to to New York or San Francisco for. And I can do that while also not necessarily being like on the, you know, being kind of broke. And when that happens, and I think that has been happening, then the lifestyle piece of it, the part where people who enjoy going out to eat and drink, you know, if a lot of the exciting young talent in those fields is not in the, is not concentrated solely in the major, major cities, then yeah, maybe there's less of a selling point for the kind of person who isn't interested in the restaurant industry, who works in finance, but is like, you know what, or maybe finance is a bad example, but they work in some certain tech or something like that. And you know what, they can, they can live a lot of different places. And they've heard that, you know, one of these cities has a great, you know, Denver has a great food scene and great drink scene. And like, maybe they are, you know, not only does the money go further there, but they don't have to make the the sacrifice that you all are describing of like, you know, the cost is so high that even for someone with a good paying job or whatever, they just can't go out as much as they want. And now the talent in the on the service side is, you know, is there, right? We've had several decades, too, of these industries maturing throughout the country where you can get a great drink in a lot of places. You don't necessarily have to just go to a few big cities. Yeah, I mean, the, they had interviewed Laura Newman for the article, and um, she is a bar owner. God, I can't think of the name of her bar, but it's in Birmingham, and um, she's from New York originally, but like couldn't afford to open a bar here, even though she wanted to be here and went to Bir- Birmingham to do it. And to your point, Zach, yeah, like now there's a great scene in Birmingham. Or she's like, been on the Cocktail College podcast. Yep, she was on the Cocktail College podcast. She did the Porn Star Martini episode. Um, but yeah, there is this talent now kind of dispersed across the country, talent who maybe worked at bars in New York or San Francisco, and then like left to go start their own things in other places. And I think, well, I think that's for sure true. And I think that's that's the one that's the thing that we've talked about the most. We've had this conversation before. The, what you're both saying, right? It's like people who work in these metro areas, these major metro areas, they leave, they go, and they go to places. The other thing though that I think that is, if we use the horse in as an example, that's been really interesting to me is like, so the the talent that owns the horse Inn actually like comes from Charleston, which is a smaller city, right? Matt and Starla, right? right. And chef and front mm-hmm. of house. Right. And then their entire bar team is from the Lancaster area. But what we have now that we didn't even have like four or five years ago in such 
is publications like VinePair, et cetera, that you all the videos, all the bar, all the bartenders who have their oh, or their own influencers who are showing how to make all these drinks. And then if you have people like Manzarella who know how to who are good operators, mm-hmm. right, who know how to run a bar and restaurant, then they're relying on this talent to teach themselves the higher end cocktail practices, but they can teach you general service and how to make sure that like you're making the drinks on time and that the mise en place is ready to go and all that stuff, right? I think that's been really interesting. And then what else you see in these these mid sized markets that you just don't see as much here anymore because again, it's so cutthroat is this level of community. And everyone talks about that, that there's, you know, everyone is really excited about everything else that's opening in their in, in these cities and they're supporting them and they're learning from each other. And like that was happening in New York at the like birth of the craft cocktail movement when Petrovsky, et cetera, were like all showing each other what yep. they were up to. But now like all these bars have super high powered publicists that are like trying to make sure that this bar gets on every single list and on you know is massive on TikTok and Instagram and yeah. that they they win our next wave award and they get top 50 and they're shortlisted for the spirited award for tails like and they're doing that because if they don't if, like if if that doesn't happen for some for bars in New York the bar's fucked basically mm-hmm. like it unless it's in a neighborhood with a really loyal clientele like Close. Try again. Yeah. Right. It, if you don't get a ton of press in in one of these bigger cities, you're screwed because people are on to the next thing. Whereas in these smaller markets, these mid-sized cities, as you were saying, the Times has, has termed them, like a Lancaster, Lancaster has a million people, mm-hmm. right, in the whole metro area. Like, you, there's like four or five really good cocktail bars, and they all support each other. And none of them talk shit about the other. It's like, oh yeah, you should go here for this. You should go there for that. Like, I know this bartender. This this beverage director came from this place. Like, when we were at the Horse Inn, the the bar team was telling us about a brand new spot that's just opening. That's from like the beverage director of um, the Italian place that Brad Thomas Parsons always goes to. And now I can't remember. It starts with an A, right? I can't think. No, Luca. Luca, Luca. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like, ever uh, there's this community, and they're all supporting each other. And I think that you just. That happens here, right, where a bar director of a, of a very well-known place in New York goes to open someplace else, and sometimes there's support, sometimes there's not, mm. you know? And that's just, I think, the nature of this. And then you can go online and read all this stuff. Like, you didn't have that even, yeah. you know, a decade ago. All, 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 all of the resources were just not there in the same way. Yeah, I think social media has also just, like, completely totally. impacted this as well. You have insight into everything. I think, you know, a decade or more ago um there weren't a lot of places that people would consider living like outside of new york city yeah. or san francisco right now it's like oh actually i saw this really cool place in phoenix i i could live there let me go check it out yeah yeah and i still feel connected i can still you know do my my videos i can still see what people are doing in new york i mm-hmm. don't have to like make sure that i visit three or four times a year like i can see what's happening in new york like, okay yeah like that's cool what's happening there but like other stuff's happening here that I'm just as excited about. You know, I felt like even a decade ago when I thought about, you know, New York versus Atlanta where I lived, you know, for college. Like when we were in Atlanta, you always knew about some stuff that was happening in New York, but it was it almost felt like it was getting filtered through, right? Because mm-hmm. it was just kind of Facebook and the beginnings of Instagram. Like then when I moved here, you started – I was able to keep up with Atlanta because at that point like Instagram had come online full force. And yeah. you still – you saw everything was still happening there and – all the cultural stuff there. And it was like, okay, cool. Like, I, I still kind of know what's cool in Atlanta, even though I don't live there anymore. It's really interesting. I want to add one last piece to this, which I think is also important here, too, which is that, you know, 
we talked kind of at the beginning about just sort of the way in which the exodus of some of these kinds of college educated um, residents might affect the bar and restaurant scenes in these cities and that in New York in particular, and, and to some extent in Seattle, you're kind of seeing this sort of, um, I guess you call it, you might call it a vicious cycle of as people who might demand more reasonably priced food and drink are leaving, it creates more kind of upward pressure on menu prices because of, you know, that's just, that's what the clientele, who the clientele is, they're willing to pay it. And, and at some point you have to kind of just, you know, that's how you stay viable in a place where there's, you know, a lot of wealth and people willing to spend it on food and drink. But I also wonder if you run the risk of almost detaching yourself from this position. And I think New York is a good example of this. I think all of the cities that are kind of, um, or most of the cities that are on this list that the Times put together have some of this risk where to justify the price, you end up either making drinks, say, or serving wines that are either extremely expensive or extremely kind of process oriented in the case of cocktails, things like that. And you sort of have almost set yourself up as like, not just not on a pedestal in the way that I think like cocktail culture and bartending in New York maybe was 20 years ago, where it was like, this was the, that was the real hub for a lot of the real kind of innovation and creation that was going on in the cocktail movement globally, Mm -hmm. but more as a like, almost like in the way that we don't look at, I think three-star Michelin restaurants as the place where you, for the most part, you look for culinary innovation. You look for places that are looking to soak rich people. Cause like, that's what they exist to do, right? They're going to serve you an extremely expensive tasting menu full of luxury ingredients. And those people often walk away from those meals feeling great, but they're not, you're not necessarily looking at that and being like, man, these are the, these are the places, these are the drinks I want to implement my own bar. Cause they're so, kind of over the top and impractical for any other kind of space, any other kind of clientele, any other kind of community that, you know, in the same way that maybe what Adam was saying about how wine and the kind of exciting things in wine might start, we might see more sort of trends emerging in other markets because that's where you can take risks and that's where innovation is possible because the cost of failure isn't as high. I think the same is true in cocktails and possibly even in other parts of the drink space where like just you know, so much of the so much of the conversation has been centered in these cities because it has been where a lot of the innovation and and sort of development and just kind of new stuff has come from, not exclusively, but largely. But as that dynamic may shift and as again to kind of justify your menu prices, you have to kind of do more and more kind of ridiculous things. I'm not sure that that will, you know, that that same level of admiration and sort of, you know, like desire to copy or, you know, kind of riff on will be, you know, I don't know if these places will be as central to that. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it it remains to be seen, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think all of this is really, you know, just the, the fact that the data now supports what we've been talking about for a while uh, is very affirming. I think, you know, as we've We've discussed in previous episodes, we know lots of people who have made these decisions and moved and opened really incredible spots. Yeah. Um, if you're one of those, hit us up at uh, podcast.vinepair.com. Let us know about what caused you to make the move in the first place and what you're doing now, um, what trends you're seeing. Do you, you know, I'm also really curious about my hypothesis, how, what, how people react to that. If you, if you think as I do, like some of the most exciting discoveries and emergences of like, 
unknown wines and wine regions mm. are going to happen in these markets and not in New York. That's that's what my gut says. I feel like, you know, those the wines that are everyone wants, the Burgundies of the world, like they're going to kind of be all here at this point and they're going to sell very well to the Kendall and, you know, Shiv and Roman Roy's <laughs> of the world. And we are all, you know, in other... That's succession, Zach. Yeah, yeah I don't I, know if you I, know I know that. the names. And, and you know... In these in these other markets, like they're gonna they're gonna be the ones that actually find the true gems. And look again, as we've talked discussed before, like if you're a winery or a winemaker or a spirits producer, and you're like not listening to this advice that you need to look at these markets instead of always concentrating on New York and LA and stuff, what the fuck are you doing at this point? Um, but yeah, hit us up podcastatfinepair.com and let us know, and I will talk to you both on Friday. Have a good week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, However you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire VinePair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.